Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. Jerry Rosenbaum is a psychiatrist, a world-renowned expert on mood and anxiety disorders, and the director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He was the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard and the Chief of Psychiatry at Mass General for 17 years, from 2002 to 2019. During our conversation, Jerry talks about his career in psychiatry, the role of rumination in mental illness, the potential for psychedelics to help the suffering and improve human well-being, and the goals of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics. I admire the mission of the Center, and its aim to better understand what occurs in the brain when influenced by psychedelics. The research in this field seems to be gaining momentum and cultural acceptance, and the work of Jerry and his team is part of a movement that aims to increase humanity's understanding of the biochemical effects that psychedelics have on the brain. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jerry Rosenbaum. All right, Jared. Well, first, I want to uh, just thank you for inviting me into your home. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to meet you. I know this was short notice, but uh, I really appreciate you making the time, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks. You can call me Jerry. Everybody okay. Call me Jerry. <laughs> Will do. Um, so I always like to start every conversation for the podcast, starting with kind of the background story of what brings you to the position that you're in right now. And obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about psychedelics and the new center that was open, I believe, this year uh, that you're heading up. Um, prior to what you're up to now, what what's the journey, what's the pathway that led you to be even be interested in or qualified for the position you're now holding with the with the center? Okay. So, uh, there are a lot of years, uh, that have passed. So, um, uh, I think you want me to start closer to where I am now. Sure. Uh, as opposed to how I got into the field of psychiatry. But, uh, so I was uh, chief of psychiatry at Mass General for a couple of decades, mm. um, uh, starting around, uh, 2000 and, uh, kind of reached my use by date, uh, which was, uh, when I turned 72, I guess. And um, I was trying to think about uh, what the afterlife would be like after, yeah. uh, you know, working so hard and long and building the department and um, and then working in my areas of research. And um, as often happens, it was a, a patient who um, kind of turned the light on for me. I was just talking to him. He was describing his anguish. And, uh, you know, I recognized it as severe rumination that he was just stuck dwelling on things that had happened or regrets. And uh, I recognized it as something that would happen to him when he was most depressed and if we were successful in finding the next treatment regimen that relieved him, that the that noise in his head would go down, that he would get some relief from it. But interestingly, it wouldn't go away. I, 
And um, I started asking him more about it. And uh, and I said, you know, you ruminate. And he liked the fact that I had a word for it. Yeah. And, um, and then I started asking more of my patients, I said, do you ruminate? What does that mean? And then I found, you know, you think after 47 years as a psychiatrist, you would uh, – there wouldn't be anything new to learn. And then I, I realized that across all diagnoses, whether it's depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, addiction, the main burden that patients, people are experiencing is this uh, this phenomenon that, you know, the what they're ruminating about and the, 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 um, uh, the triggers for it may vary, but it's this form of stuck thinking, faux problem solving, that you can't get your head out of this loop that carries so much of the burden of psychiatric disorders. And then the irony is, you know, we have this elaborate diagnostic system, DSM-5, nosology, where we, you know, put together what we think are the hallmarks of all these different diagnostic categories. And rumination isn't mentioned in any of them. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, it sort of struck me that... Um, we were missing the point. Um, and I knew there were a bunch of things that mitigate it. So uh, all my patients were getting the same set of recommendations, you know, to do meditation or mindfulness, to do exercise, you know, have a good diet and good nutrition, um, um, take walks in nature. Um, and um, if they have a what we call an axis one psychiatric disorder, like, you know, major depression or uh, bipolar disorder and anxiety disorder, you know, if, if medications work for them to take their medication. And, um, and then the department that I work in is about half PhD psychologists. So do a lot of very specialized uh, forms of CBT. So all those things would be helpful, but never seem to really, relieve people, you know, shut it off completely. They just mitigate. So because I was still in my job and I could do this, I convened, you know, a team of, you know, the best and brightest from around the department from, you know, neuroimaging to cognitive uh, neuroscience to psychiatry and, and uh, uh, CBT and others and tried to put together a task force to understand the biology of circuitry of rumination and try to find new paths to treat it. Uh, as luck would have it, there was a junior faculty member, uh, her name is Sharman Ghaznavi, who was an MD, PhD, who uh, uh, was really bright, uh, had just had, uh, uh, had had twin boys and then a baby girl, and her career was, you know, delayed. And it turned out when she was a graduate student at Yale, she uh, focused on rumination. Oh. And so we teamed up, uh, we um, uh, created a a measure so that you could study rumination uh, acutely. There were there are measures of it as a as a trait, but not as a state that you can measure change in. Started building a program around it. Uh, so that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is I have a friend who you might actually want to podcast someday, who uh, is sort of a an entrepreneurial guy, and uh, uh, but he's an influencer in the. Um, psychedelic realm but he's also uh, married to my wife's best friend <laughs> and so we would go out to dinner and he would like to ask me questions about psychedelics as if i you know because i'm you know world famous psycho psychopharmacologist as if i give him answers but he knew far more than i did <laughs> but he didn't let on and i would say things and he'd ask me questions and 
I would realize that my uh, assumptions weren't always, you know, um, fully evidence-based. And um, so one day he, uh, there was a program over at the Broad Institute. Uh, yeah. It wasn't, it was just using their facility. And it had a bunch of people talking about psychedelics, including, uh, um, I think, a psychiatrist from Columbia or, uh, and uh, some uh, others who had had a lot of experience in um, on the underground, mm. but also had a guest lecturer who I heard for the first time that eventually got to meet and become friendly with is Robin Carhart Harris, who's a uh, pioneering uh, investigator in psychedelics from the Imperial College in London. Now he's at uh, UC Berkeley. He's just, I don't know if he's there now, but he's, he's or about to be recruited there. And um, he, he had done some neuroimaging studies of people on psilocybin, and he was presenting the data. And when he showed the data about what acute changes and longer-term changes were observed, um, and maybe in an oversimplified way, it looked like uh, uh, when people were experiencing this ego dissolution that there were these profound changes in a very important network in the brain called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And uh, it uh, uh, just uh, struck me that people who ruminate are really active in that network, you see, increased activity in default mode network. So in a, a very simple way, I said that we would do well to look at psilocybin in this population of people who ruminate. So um, the next step was trying to source psilocybin. And that led me to um, a uh, much admired uh, um, physician who co-founded Compass Pathways. Mm -hmm. um, her, her name is Katja Maliskaya. And she... Um, um, I just talking to her, I said, you know, can you help us? We'd like to study this phenomenon of rumination with psychedelics or with psilocybin. And uh, she was very supportive of the idea, thought that uh, uh, the company would be willing to, to supply psilocybin for our study. And, uh, and then uh, she raised the question uh, to us, uh, could we think of something bigger? And, uh, you know, I'm sitting at Mass General Hospital, you know, the main teaching hospital of Harvard Medical School, the nation's largest hospital-based uh, um, medical, uh, biomedical research facility, uh, over a billion dollars a year of funded research just at Mass General. So, you know, we're little known secret, so we have far more research than Harvard does. But it's, but it, and it's all in this realm of uh, working on disease, you know, it's bench to bedside, bedside to bench. It's a credible resource. So everywhere you look, there are potential contributors to this question of uh, what would you want to study if you were interested in psychedelics? And we focused on the fact that lots of people are using them, trying them in different conditions, and we don't really know what's going on in the brain. <laughs> so um, I called... Uh, People I'd known, again, I'd been at the institution 47 years and had uh, run for several years the executive committee on research, so I knew the research um, labs and leaders pretty well, and I just struck gold. So uh, um, the first person I called was a guy named Bruce Rosen, who runs the, with, uh, our neuroimaging facility. It's called the Martino Center, and um, his team uh, invented fMRI, for example, and they build new tools and they create all the new to the connectome and all these fancy 
new um, technologies for neuroimaging. Uh, Bruce likes to say that the Martino Center um, employs more physics than MIT, and it's true. So it's an amazing resource. And he said, I always wanted to do that this research to study psychedelics. One is because he's been a tremendous partner with the Department of Psychiatry in studying psychiatric disorders and is interested in that. He also had some members of his uh, research team who were already doing some research in that area, uh, looking at uh, receptor binding and some non-human primate research. But he never really felt that he could come out and and say, I want to do psychedelic studies. He sort of thought that might be controversial. Yeah. But the uh, And maybe in my naivete, uh, I just went ahead and, and declared it. Uh, you know, I put my, yeah, I don't know if you ever listened to Mel Brooks, but there's a scene in Texas, actually, where he's interviewing a psychiatrist named Buck Murchison. And, and he says to him, you know, where... Um, so where did you learn to be a psychiatrist or train to be a psychiatrist? And he said, Texas. And he said, University of Texas? He said, no, just Texas. He went out one day, I put my hand on a rock, and I said, I am a psychiatrist. So that's what I did. I just said, we are the Center for the Neuroscience Psychedelics. Bruce was going to be the scientific director. And, uh, um, I, and then I remember the first time I was interviewed by somebody like you or somebody else who said, you know, uh, how hard was it to get permission to start a psychedelic center at the Mass General? And I said, oh, gee, it occurs to me I forgot to ask. You yeah. know? But I, the, the president of the hospital is a fabulous person, physician, and has been a great supporter of psychiatry. So when, you know, when I went to him and I said, you know, I said, well, you know we, he, he, he was fine with it. He thought it was, you know, he, there was no, never any problem. But, um, and then... Uh, the next person I asked was the uh, director of uh, um, a lab in our um, uh, Center for Genomic Medicine. Uh, he calls it the Chemical Neurobiology Laboratory, a guy named Steve Haggerty. And there was another, you know, it, it, I guess it's Kismet or something. But, you know, he looked at me and confessed that this, would been a, this is a lifelong passion of his, that he had been... Uh, uh, reading this literature since he was a kid, that he had all the original books from Richard Evans Schulte's uh, uh, explorations in the Amazon for, in psych for psychedelics and psychoactive plants, um, that uh, he had always wanted his lab to be working in this area, but the same thing. He just, you know, he thought that, it that uh, people would uh, question it. Yeah. And now that we declared ourselves a center, he was definitely in. And then he brought in another person, a, a real neurochemist named Jacob Hooker. And then, you know, my colleague and I that I started the rumination study with. And then I discovered that at this conference that I went to that I mentioned before, one of my former residents that I used to supervise was a panelist. And because he had a lifelong interest in this stuff and he knew every study that had ever been done and he was a great teacher. So he became, and slowly we just built out this center and it keeps being added. We just added a, a, uh, a pioneering cardiologist who's interested in you know, cardiovascular issues and psychedelics, uh, um, somebody in regenerative medicine who is interested in neurogenesis and, and memory and, and it just, it just kept building out. So then, then the challenge was resourcing it because although the NIH has started to fund some studies in this area, it, you know, it, it wasn't an option really for us to get going. We had to raise money. So 
before the pandemic, we we were really on track. We um, the uh, um, people who first inspired us, Katya Malaskaiva and and uh, George Goldsmith, who were co-founders of Camp Compass Pathways, had a foundation that uh, funded our first or part partially funded uh, the first studies we wanted to do, and then they introduced us to a family who have been profiled in our uh, development uh, offices. Uh, uh, new uh, magazines and so forth. A very poignant and sad story of a family that lost a daughter and a granddaughter to suicide. And her passion was, or her motivation was, that she thought that she could be helped by psychedelics, but she couldn't source them anywhere. And in her frustration, or during a dark period, she took her life. And the family wanted to memorialize her and so made a fund at Mass General on, uh, with her name. Ariel Susan. So that fund and the, the original gift uh, are supporting uh, my colleague that I mentioned that started with me in rumination. And uh, our first two studies, um, the, uh, the first one is all approved, just waiting for some space to be built out. And that's uh, with treatment-resistant depressed patients who have severe rumination <laughs> and involves a lot of neuroimaging, really four sessions of neuroimaging and uh, treatment with psilocybin. And then there will be a second study with psilocybin. And then uh, we ended during the pandemic, uh, you know, my aspirations of raising 50 or $100 million to create an enduring center. And I'll explain why, you know, I was that optimistic, but um, kind of uh, leveled off. And, and we, but then things started happening. We got um, some of the labs that I mentioned have gotten uh, uh, funding from uh, foundations associated with some of the bigger companies like uh, Atai hmm. um, and other gifts, and um, including uh, one to uh, support graduate student research, a $2 million gift that, that uh, could be uh, um, matched in a couple of years if we you know, deliver uh, uh, on the uh, promise. So right now we've raised a, a little under $10 million for the center. So uh, although it's just distributed among several different groups and more are joining and every day uh, more colleagues, young, particularly uh, young residents want, want to participate and I just, you know, I don't have things for them yet. Yeah. And uh, I get probably 10 emails a day from patients who have heard about the center uh, saying, you know, I, I'm out of hope. I think this can help. Can you help me? And I have to say, you know, we just have a couple of small studies started. We're not legally allowed to treat anybody with these substances. And, and, it's, and it's very poignant, although some of them uh, have not tried ketamine. So there's an option for yeah. them. So that's kind of the story. So we, you know, we have... Uh, this goal, which is to understand what psychedelics do in the brain. We're not there to show or prove that it works in this disorder or that disorder. There's plenty of that activity. There are dozens, maybe hundreds of companies that have launched to find a, their niche or their uh, their domain, depending on the size of the company. In the psychedelic markets, it's kind of a, a land rush. And, uh, you know, all the known psychedelics, the ones that people have been using for thousands of years are being commercialized in different ways by 
you know, being synthesized as medicines or reformulated to be delivered in a novel way or, you know, uh, adding some molecule or atom like a, like deuterium to the, to, to the psychedelic to change it a little bit, to create some advantage, to, to look and see whether DMT or 5-MeO-DMT, you know, because it's shorter will work better than psilocybin or whether LSD can be microdosed or combined. So there's hundreds, of, you know, I think in last year there was a close to a billion dollars of investment and with IPOs, many billions of dollars worth of valuation in this market. Mm. But we're focused on, on, on just trying to know what's going on in the brain. Mm. And, um, yeah, from the from the molecular level through the network level, and uh, why do we want to do that? Because we we one we think we uh, if you do that, you'll be able to develop new ways to accomplish the same goals that people are seeking with psychedelics, perhaps without the you know the burden and the history of the Schedule One drugs, come up with new treatments, maybe even new ways to accomplish the same if you understand what genes are turned on or what nodes in the networks are critical to these changes that are associated with people's uh, experiences with psychedelics. We might be able to, you know, do it with other um, less costly, less burdensome, uh, less controversial treatments, or at least even um, open the window on uh, treating many conditions, not just psychiatric, that are brain-based that we haven't been able to do before. So let me back up a little bit. <clears throat> Some of this has to do with, uh, you know, the whole history of psychedelics, the testimonials, the small studies, many small studies that have been going on since the 60s and then obviously got interrupted for mainly political reasons. But there, the, the cumulative... Um, uh, knowledge from the, that experience is all just extraordinarily uh, um, inspiring. Yeah. So, uh, but it's it's not the kind of data that typically allows you to make a lot of the claims that people believe are true. So you, you still have to be a little bit cautious in what claims you make. But you know the testimonials. You know everybody knows people who have uh, had a life-changing experience, uh, uh, a, uh, um, uh, a moving experience that al allowed them to feel different in their skin. It's interesting. It reminds me a little bit about, uh, of some of the experiences that uh, people had in long-term psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, and to, to an observer, it's similar. They, it changes how you feel about yourself. But sometimes to an observer, you don't recognize the change in that person. It's, you know, I, I remember one of my cousins, and hopefully she won't listen to this blog, you know, after 10 years of psychoanalysis, she just described how this has transformed how she feels in the world. But to everybody else, she was just the same person. Yeah. So maybe that, but that may, that may be meaningful. I mean, in, as a psychiatrist, you, you're really trying to help people feel better about themselves and within themselves and, and stop suffering. So, and you know, You've spent your whole career in this world, right, in psychiatry, watching people suffer. And I, I would be curious to know during that time if, one, you were satisfied with the options presented to people who came to you for help, and two, if you had heard of psychedelics or considered it as a potential option for them. 
So, you know, the answer to your question may be, uh, seem a little uh, glib, but th yeah, there are many times when I was very satisfied. Hmm. It, it sort of echoes what uh, William Osler said about new treatments. Hmm. You should use them while they still work. <laughs> and so that may be a cautionary tale also about psychedelics. But, you know, uh, when I trained, which was uh, 1974, I started training. The only thing we learned, the only thing residents were trained in was psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, psych what, what is that for people who don't that's know that That's Freudian psychiatry yeah. or, or various schools of um, psychotherapy that evolved from the original uh, psychoanalytic theories, of, you know, about, you know, early developmental experience and how um, it sh shapes your personality and depending on the defense mechanisms you have to use to deal with certain things that go awry in childhood that leads to various symptoms. And it was a, a very elaborate um, theory that explained everything. Um, but I also realized that um, it was uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, uh, tautological. Uh, not that a lot of people weren't helped by psychotherapy. Everybody, in some ways, people are. It's human relationships and, and understanding and, and uh, you know, go a long way and helping people heal. But the, uh, what I realized is that the, uh, it never failed because, um, at least as I observed my supervisors who were teaching this, that uh, if somebody got better during the course of therapy, it was because of the therapy. And if they didn't get better during the course of therapy and they stopped the therapy, it was because they didn't finish the therapy. So no, the ther therapy never failed. And so uh, I you know, had enough scientific <laughs> Training as you know from undergraduate and medical school to know that that just you know you, you can't play that game. And then um, I was uh, it was you know mid seventies where well actually seventy two lithium became available and um, the antidepressants were available but you weren't really allowed to use them. I mean it was uh, you know I remember uh, as a resident I was evaluated a, a woman who had a two-year-old at home and a newborn and had what we would now know as postpartum depression. And after at the evaluation, we were not technically allowed to treat people. We had to evaluate them for two or three sessions, create a report, present it, and then the person would inevitably would be assigned to a psychotherapist. But I, had, having had an internship at Denver General Hospital where they had a very evolved community mental health system, I had learned some psychiatry there. And so I started her on a, an antidepressant called amipramine, and because uh, I couldn't send her home, you know, uh, without treatment, and she got better. And then when I presented to my supervisor, I was greeted with this in front of my peers, this this horror. He looked at me and said, "You started this woman on chemicals." So, for me. The old antidepressants, lithium, were magical. I mean, I could tell you stories of, you know, of uh, people who had been misdiagnosed as schizophrenic were on these antipsychotics, were just had all the neurologic side effects. And I took a history and said, this isn't schizophrenia. This is bipolar. What we call it, manic depressive. Starting lithium, some of these people just came alive, and they'd come back and visit you. And so I had many periods in my life feeling enormous satisfaction as a psychiatrist uh, using these new tools 
you know, uh, lithium and then other mood stabilizers and the old antidepressants, MAO inhibitors were magical for some people, but they had burdens, you know, side effect burdens. They, not everybody, you know, was um, equally burdened by them, but so I had lots of positive experience. And then um, I was very, I, I became a clinical researcher and was very active in, you know, in studies of newer antidepressants and they were like tremendous. You know, when Prozac came out, I'll tell you, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, we, we felt like, uh, you know, surgeons, you know, yeah. curing people. Um, so the world, so what you have to realize is that there are millions of people who suffer. And so um, uh, any percent that don't do well is a large number. So uh, several things started happening. You know, one is that people who did well for a while stopped doing well. And we call that poop out, Prozac poop out. Mm. So anyway, the point is that with each new surge of new therapeutics, um, we felt that we had made tremendous gains and were really helping people. Uh, we created a psychopharmacology program that didn't differentiate into what's our modern department of psychiatry with you know, anxiety disorders and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and 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 depression each you know we have 55 individual clinical and research programs at mass general all focused on either a, a treatment modality like uh, neurotherapeutics or a diagnostic category like ocd the ocd clinical and research unit and each of those emerged from those in the early days of successes and each one is probably the size of an average department of psychiatry somewhere else mm. and all of them have had tremendous successes but as time went on um, and treatment got more ordinary most of the easy cases most of the people who got treated and did well were in primary care offices and psychiatrists basically started seeing what we now call treatment resistant or non-responders or complicated patients or people with comorbidity where they have not just bipolar disorder but panic disorder with it and addiction and so forth. So psychiatry got tougher and tougher because all the people who just responded readily to um, the treatments, you know, weren't, you know, didn't need to come to us. Often insurers, you know, made that the case. So we started seeing more and more treatment-resistant population. Or people got more treatment-resistant over time, maybe, you know. Um, there are lots of possible explanations for why doesn't seem as easy as it once seemed. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned something earlier that I'd never heard before, which is that the idea that the, the through line between many of the major psychological illnesses that people suffer from, that is a symptom for all of those people, is a form of rumination, often severe rumination. If you could define for people, I think a lot of people have a rough idea of what that word means. How do you define that? What is something... What is a what's a level we all probably ruminate to some degree? Sure. Well, what is the level at which someone is reaching a a, a crippling or mentally a, a designation in which they would be classified as mentally ill? Right. If you know, if they can't they can't distract from it, mm -hmm. everybody has experience of uh, something they regret or might have felt humiliated about, and you think about it, but you move on. But if you can't you can't distract from it, <clears throat> and you get anguished. And it takes a lot of your time, and it's associated with um, uh, escalating distress, uh, depressed mood, um, self-deprecatory thoughts, 
Um, so it's a, it, it's stuck thinking. Uh, it's a you know it's a repetitive loop. Um, it's um, driven in part by trying to res- yeah a feeling of trying to resolve it or get to um, a feeling of peace about it, but you can't. And the more you do it, you actually feel worse and worse. So I mean I guess it you know it, it is dimensional in a way. I mean as you say everybody ruminates. Um, and uh, saying when it's pathological and when it's normal, like everything in psychiatry, is challenging. And the <clears throat> what I like to say is that you know we all know day from night, dusk and dawn are a little harder to call. Hmm. So you know yeah, people know when they're suffering, um, and and um, and when it's uh, so hard that they can't you know um, enjoy life or can't. Function at work or at home, um, and uh, you know it's a uh, and it's in the brain. You know it's a it's a stuck loop. Uh, uh, I was del- you know Michael Pollan, who you, you know well, was sure. uh, uh, is on our advisory council for the center and was and was our uh, uh, plenary guest for our launch event. And he really likes this idea that you know we focused on rumination and that uh, he thinks that this may be key to how psychedelics um, are beneficial, that they unstick us. Um, you know, you, you try to figure out how what psychedelics are doing, and, and it's probably not one thing. You know, uh, for example, people have intense emotional experiences, spiritual experiences, ego dissolution, loss of sense of self. Um, we know that um, there are these changes in in, uh, in brain connectivity that I mentioned in neuroimaging that uh, we know there are changes in neuroplasticity. You see this growth in um, neuronal connections and synapses and, uh, and you know, budding on neurons and new den- den- dendritic spines and so forth. So um, these drugs are doing something in the brain that is encouraging something that uh, happened that we associate with you know early brain development, neuroplasticity, the ability to change, and here we're sort of opening a window on it again in adult life in a way that um, we do see with the other psychiatric treatments, you know, with antidepressants and so forth, but um, not as dramatically, not as rapidly. So, question is: Is that part of how psychedelics help? But that the idea that uh, neurons are making new connections and are sprouting doesn't explain how something can change from one minute to the next. Somebody can have this experience and then wake up and feel different. Hmm. You'd think neuroplasticity may be something that sustains it, makes it more durable. But why should it happen instantly? And for some people, at least according to some of the testimonials, and or even in the studies where you, know, you have one, two, or three, say, psilocybin sessions and you're no longer depressed as opposed to days or weeks of uh, antidepressant treatment. So it changes your state somehow. It allows the brain to change state, to flip from, you know, one form of connectivity among various nodes in the brain to another. And uh, so that's pretty, pretty magical. Um, but we don't, we don't really know. Is it important to have had the spiritual experience? To, is, it, is it better to feel like you've lost your sense of self and you don't, you know, no longer have what Freud called ego, but was in German ich, which means a sense of I, yourself. Mm. Um, so we don't really know wh- what is accounting for this. 
And there's something to learn in it. So if you can open neuroplasticity in, in the brain, maybe you could target neurodegenerative disease, not just, you know, emotional disease. Maybe there are opportunities for, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and so forth. So that's the stuff that we want to try to understand. Is there a path to, to uh, knowing what psychedelics are doing beyond just binding to certain receptors and uh, triggering changes in brain connectivity, you know, what genes are being turned on, what pathways are being um, uh, triggered, and, uh, and then is there, a, is there, a, are there other ways to do that? There, there are companies right now trying to understand whether it's even essential to, to have an experience with psychedelics. <laughs> so, you know, we think of, you know, you have this intense spiritual experience, and it, or if you're using DMT, you're meeting uh, uh, ro ro robot elves or whatever, you know. Um, the, there are companies that, are, that have the hypothesis or, uh, that you, know, you may not even need to have the experience that the drug itself might do, and they're developing treatments like that that you know might, might bypass the whole psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, I, I love the quote you mentioned earlier, which I think you said was from decades ago related to, you know, you may as well, you should be using the drugs while they still work. Um, you, you're getting into this field late, later in your career, right? I mean, you were mentioning this before that this was something that you in the, in the twilight of your work were interested in trying to get into. And it seemed like there was latent energy there by a lot of people you know or were connected with who were interested in trying to see as you said if if what if there could be interesting uh, investigations about what is going on in the brain and potential therapeutic options for people that you're trying to help and i know it's early right you're this is articulate you should be the one being interviewed <laughs> thank you uh, i i i'm curious for you if there's an intuition even though the research is obviously not in and there there hasn't been um, the, the kind of emphasis on clinical trials that I'm sure will come eventually, do you think there is a there there, that there there is reason for hope that there are people who are resistant to current methods of treatment that actually could really benefit from what you might be able to offer one day? No, I'm sure that's true. And we've actually already seen that with... Uh a treatment that's available that's not, you know, it's not truly psychedelic, but has some uh, uh, interesting overlap, and that's ketamine. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, ketamine the ketamine story is a bit different. I mean, it, but it was also a, a drug that was used, uh, you know, uh, um, in non-medical uses. Uh, I mean, it had obviously had uses in anesthesia and, and maybe uh, pain, and, uh, but it was a party drug. Um, and um, although its mechanism of action is different than the iconic psychedelics and it's thought to be more glutamatergic, it still has that neuroplasticity-inducing property, and researchers at NIMH and at Yale and other places began studying it, and it worked for, paradoxically, best in patients that other things didn't work for. Hmm. So, it would, you know, for patients who were more severely depressed, had more anxiety and depression, which is typically a marker of more treatment resistant and more suicidal. In some cases, it didn't treat the depression, but the suicidality went away. So we have seen this with molecules, that they can do things we haven't seen with other molecules. Now, it didn't, doesn't work for everybody. It's not, it doesn't seem as enduring as you know, at least the testimonials about psychedelics. 
but we've seen that there are other ways to to treat that treat people we haven't been able to help and also works fast you know we've we've, we've lived with this idea that you had to have weeks of treatment with our remedies before they work they work and now there's this interest in rapid you know rapid treatments so yes i i think from all the testimonials the studies that have been done smaller smaller studies um mostly uh although the mdma ptsd study was a reasonably powered study um and there are larger studies going on but i'm i'm sure it'll give us a tool that will allow us to treat people that have not been well served by our current treatments. Now, the question is, I mean, there's a big commercial bet that psychedelics are going to replace everything. Mm. Um, there's not enough room on the shelf for all the different psychedelics that are being developed right now. And people talk about it as a bubble. It's, it's, it's probably a commercial bubble, but it's not a therapeutic bubble. I mean, it will, it will give us tools that will help people that we haven't been able to help. Now, whether it will replace a lot, lots of what we do or only, you know, for the, uh, those who are most refractory to treatment, I, I can't say. But they will be part of, you know, what future psychiatrists and others will be using to treat brain disorders of all sorts, but primarily um, behavioral or psychiatric disorders. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will be in the, in, you know, in the toolkit. Yeah. Whether they'll be the toolkit, I, I'm not sure. It's a center for psychedelics, and I, I think still in the culture there is this remnant of the hippies in the 60s and 70s when people hear that word. When when you say that word, and, and specific to the, the substances that you hope to study or are studying, what are we talking about here? What substances? You've mentioned psilocybin multiple times. Is there anything else that will be in that category that you'll be researching? Um, so, you know, we we will be, we are researching other psychedelics. Uh, uh, one is, in, in, I can't mention because it's not it's not one of the, the um, available psychedelics and, and it's part of a sponsored research agreement. So, but it is a psychedelic agent, but it's not, LSD, psilocybin, IO, uh, DMT, or ayahuasca, uh, ibogaine, um, uh, 5-MeO, DMT. Um, I don't know. NDMA uh, is not is is by mechanism a little different, but is often included in the list. I think those are the the, the ones that you can access, even though they're Schedule One drugs. If you're doing research, you can access to study in humans. So um, we have proposals out to, uh, to study MDMA and PTSD, as I said, with mindful uh, self-compassion. We have a proposal uh, for um, microdosing of LSD and anxiety disorders. We have two studies with psilocybin. Uh, we're talking to a company about the possibility of a neuroimaging study with um, 5-MeO-DMT. So those are the ones that are in our... Um, I hope in our near future or uh, that we'll be um, able to um, do human studies in. Um, the, um, the labs, the basic labs that work in the center are focused on a variety of um, innovative uh, explorations into other um, psychoactive, potentially psychedelic plants hmm. um, from the uh, Schultes legacy, uh, Richard Evans Schultes, who cataloged all these plants in the Amazon in the 60s and um, wrote um, 
this uh, book, the planet, plants, the, the plants of the gods, is I think is the name of it. Hmm. The uh, right there, there's two aspects, and as I'm hearing you, that I, I think are interesting. One is just the sheer the knowledge that you will gain, and your team will gain over time in terms of what as you have mentioned a couple of times that the, the primary mission seems to be knowledge about what is happening inside the brain on when, when psychedelics are introduced, then there's a secondary, uh, effect or outcome, which is the hope for people who are really suffering. Given the fact we're prefacing this question by noting that it is still early and are probably not sufficient research has been yet done. It, who are the people in your mind, and you've alluded to this a little bit, that you would say, you know, there may be hope on the way. There, you have some these certain type of symptoms or uh, psychological distresses and illnesses. Uh, you know, I there's reason to believe that one day there are new options that might be available to you to, to help you. Who are those people and what, what do you, what, what's your initial intuition on so, what that so might look like? So the people on the horizon who, who potentially benefit will be the ones who are the, uh, have the conditions that are currently under study uh, uh, in FDA approved trials. So uh, in two to three years, there could be, um, uh, FDA approval, or at least data that would allow approvability of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA for PTSD. Mm. But the um, uh, again, the small studies testimonials suggest that the potential application of these agents is much broader than that. And 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 then th there's a fair amount of controversy about you know whether these agents should be restricted for medical uses because there are lots of folks who would say that they've been important in their life journey and, you know, ranging from um, feeling more at peace with themselves and then even later in life, you know, approaching death and or having a terminal diagnosis. And those studies go back into the, you know, 30 years ago, you know, of... Uh, uh, losing the terror of dying, um, no longer suffering anxiety and depression with at end of life. So these are substances that can have a broad array of of uh, uh, important uses outside of medicine potentially, and and that that may be what we see first because <laughs> it's the medicinal use that's being regulated, and it's the um, non medicinal use some ways that's being, uh, at least in some areas of the country, are being uh, um, at least decriminalized. Mm. And so there, there are those who are setting up retreats and facilities and programs to allow people to elect to have these experiences in a legal way, uh, in a uh, um, you know, carefully managed way, just for personal growth. They, they, you know, they're the term for psychedelics, or at least some of them, are is entheogens. You know, yeah. they they uh, uh, spark spiritual growth, and that's how uh, they were used for thousands of years, obviously by indigenous people as kind of holy or spiritual, or you know, communing with you know the universe and nature. And, and um, so there is some controversy in in the world of psychedelics about all this rush to make the medicines. Although I think that's obviously important because they, they will be valuable medicines for people. But there's also this parallel 
push to make them more available. Now, you can live in a bubble. I mean, and I, I uh, of people who are passionate about their commercial opportunities, passionate about their uh, the, the the their availability, uh, passionate about their uses uh, medications. But there are still many people who you know, and they're not heard from as much that have more cautionary tales about them. And I was surprised. Uh, I had um, I was actually on a, on a a TV show where, where there was we were supposed to have a debate, and because we weren't you know, seen as advocating the decriminalization specifically or or or, or change in policy, we were just studying the brain. Hmm. It didn't get to be much of a debate, but a, um, a very highly respected former government official and neuroscientist was issuing you know a fair amount of um, caution and saying you know uh, there there will be. Uh, uh, unintended consequences, uh, the way there was, you know, when we, you know, uh, were trying to uh, treat pain and uh, with opiates, that there, there is, there are stories and uh, experiences where, uh, if these drugs are approved, they may be widely used in a way that um, aren't uh, that it, that isn't the case when they're used as medicines, where you, you know, you this. You're prepared for their use. You're carefully monitored and and supported during their use, and you have a period of in integration and uh, of the experience after the use. That if these drugs are widely used, that there may be unintended consequences. Maybe people damaged. Um, you know, when I was a resident, they, you know, I do. I part of my rotation was on, was on, or is actually an elective was with a clinic that was seeing. Uh, People with uh, who had done lots of LSD and were, you know, suffering, uh, you know, visual flashbacks and other uh, enduring uh, consequences of overuse. Mm. So I mean that can happen, um, but um, compared to lots of other substances that we allow people to have free access <laughs> to, they they are uh, um, they are pretty ben benign. I, I, I mean, the, the experience of using them is very intense, and we think there are some people who shouldn't use them if they have a psychotic disorder, for example. But David Nutt, a, a very um, senior neuroscientist, uh, psychiatrist in, in England, has to use his words, he says, when you look at harm to self and harm to others, uh, these drugs are way down the list of things that we prescribe that are available, alcohol, tobacco, what have you. Um, and uh, it makes no sense that they're Schedule 1. You know, the, the Schedule 1 means they have no value at all, and we, we already know enough to know that's not the case. I, I'm glad you brought up the potential downside risk here because I, I'd, I'd like you to, to speak to that a little bit. I mean, who, in your judgment, given we're sitting here talking in 2021, given your knowledge, given your, your assessment, who in what is the appropriate setting for taking these substances generally and who you alluded to this briefly who really should think hard about whether they should take it or really in your in your mind should not be taking right. these substances so so going back to what i said about how um these substances open a window uh, allowing the brain to change neuroplasticity yet that's neutral mm. it doesn't mean that you can have positive growth or you could have negative I mean, we think of PTSD as a consequence of a, a window of neuroplasticity that opens in the face of trauma or sustained yeah. uh, threat. 
um, your brain has to learn quickly when your life's in danger. And so, you know, one model of PTSD is that, you know, why it becomes so enduring is that, you know, it's uh, trauma induces neuroplasticity and you learn dramatically to fear. And so if it's neuroplasticity, you know, and, and you're in the wrong set, setting or you're not well prepared, I suppose it could be a traumatic experience, you know. Uh, so that that's one issue. Um, it's an intense emotional experience. Not everybody is, you know, maybe happy to feel that they don't exist as an individual person for a while. Um, but it, it's hard. It's hard to um, to get good documentation of how often that happens. I mean, we have seen people who have had. Um, describe them as, you know, one of the most challenging or difficult or terrifying experiences. But they'll often say that, you know, the net uh, uh, of the experience was a benefit. Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard to know, you know, what the potential damage is. The caution is that we don't give them to people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or any psychotic disorder. That's more um, just uh, practice than something we know well. Hmm. I mean... Uh, um, it's 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 caution. I mean, it's possible that in the right context, at the right time, and the right dose, that they may not be harmful. But um, as with anything, you know, the, there's a, a you know a, a need for moderation. We know with MDMA that uh, if you use it too many times, you know, you could uh, damage your heart valve. Probably um, a heart valve. You know, it's a 5-HT2 uh, receptor binder, like a drug called fenfluramine. The FDA limits the number of times you're allowed to, if you're in a study, to, to have had um, an MDMA. So there's just unknowns. I mean, I, I can't really tell you any data that I know of of uh, you know um, populations that we know will be harmed or what the harm is. But uh, I think uh, we know from other drug class experiences that before you know a lot, you, you uh, have to be cautious. This is why we really want to know what's happening in the brain. You know, people aren't that interested in the science. They're interested in their, being, their availability, their access, yeah. their commercial value. But we think this is an essential part of the story that, uh, you know, if, if we understand what, what is happening, it may amplify you know, the, uh, the progress of uh, access, that people will understand it in a way that uh, will reduce the fear or the legacy of uh, association with, you know, depending on who you are, counterculture, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think we just need to know what, you know, what is happening in the brain. Now, it's possible you might learn something that would be a setback, and maybe that's why people aren't rushing to fund this science hmm. but my guess is that it will lead us to new approaches new tools new molecules new 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 therapies that will will replace the psychedelics that are being studied now in the same way we replace the old tricyclic antidepressants with newer antidepressants just because they are more convenient to use or they are more tolerable or they you know work more efficiently so i mean that's the hope of uh, you know what our center is engaged in. Yeah, you, you noted a couple anecdotes. Uh, one you, you've spoken about a couple times. I think a, a patient that um, you noted earlier who had 
severe rumination uh, and told a little bit about her story. But then you also mentioned, I think you said it was your wife's best friend's husband who you had dinner with, who it seemed like that was a kind of a formative time for you in terms of your shift in thinking about these more, a little bit more seriously. What did you learn from those conversations? What about what information got you really clued into the fact that there might be something there? Yeah, well, it was remarkable to think of oneself as an expert and, and realize there's this huge gap in knowledge. Yeah. You make a lot of assumptions. And then if you dig deep, you find that there's really substance there. I mean, even going back to the work that was done in the 60s and maybe early 70s around treating alcoholism with LSD, there were a lot of very serious, smart people who saw real promise in these agents. And it just got buried. It wasn't even part of our, or very much part of our training to know about that history. So it was like rediscovering something. It was like buried treasure in a way. Yeah. And um and it and it, it took a a person with no medical training um to uh very uh, uh graciously and and but systematically um to exploit me. Um I think he knew. You know, he, he you know that somebody compiled a list of the top 100 influencers in psychedelic and he's on that list. Wow! And um, uh, and he's chair of our advisory council now. <laughs> and um, he had been working very hard, um, uh, bringing support to uh, other groups as well to uh, bring uh, um, philanthropic support to other science. I think he knew that this was a no- that that having uh, a center here would be a, a, a boost to the to the cause. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. But I think there were also he was he's serious about you know what we need to learn that that there is a big gap in the in the uh, in, uh, in the science uh, that um, you know if if uh, if if you know that gap is addressed that uh, what he thinks is going to be important for mankind you know will be uh, um, facilitated. I mean, if you if you've ever heard Rick Doblin speak, sure. you yeah. know. Uh, you know, while he's a developing MDMA as a medication for PTSD and has had a, his group is published in a very significant journal in, uh, um, in Nature Medicine, the, um, the, their phase three study, if, if you have a chance to listen to him, you know, he's talking not just about a medication for a psychiatric disorder, but a tool that he hopes will change the course of humanity yeah you know that uh, uh, bring an end to the way we ha- can hate each other um and bring an end to uh um the kind of uh loathing and despair that underpins so much of you know human chaos and and now maybe the uncertainty about the future of humanity i mean he talks in those terms yeah that you know, if people had access to these things, they'd change their attitudes. They, uh, um, they'd connect more with nature and the world and with each other. MDMA, in particular, uh, uh, as an empathogen, I refer to the psychedelics yeah. as entheogens. Empathogens is sort of it creates a more um, warmth and connectivity with self and others. Um, which is possibly why it works in PTSD. You have now compassion for yourself and what you've been through in a way that allows you to forgive yourself as you uh, permit others to forgive you and connect. Um, 
so it, it, that that's a whole other dimension of um, you know how some of these pioneers who labored you know in 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 the darkness all these decades while you know fighting um, to uh, bring these substances back into uh, consideration for their value. He's been at this for decades. You know, I think since the 80s, mid-80s, or maybe even before oh, right, that. Even before, yeah. He, I've heard him say in a, a previous interview that um, a formative experience for him was a dream he had when he was a young man from ancestors of his who um, had died in the Holocaust, Yeah, who came to him in a dream and said, you are here this is kind of your purpose. This is, you know, yeah. you are here to bring this to humanity right, or to right. help to try to bring this to, exactly. to humanity. Um, he talks about the Holocaust uh, as, a, as a big um, theme in uh, why he thinks it's essential that humanity have access to these experiences. Yeah. yeah. The, the friend that you mentioned before, I'm going to go back to him. Did, were there anecdotes that he mentioned to you or books that he recommended that to you, you know, I don't know your, your perception of psychedelics had been prior to that time. If you thought that they were, you know, kind of foolish, pleasure-driven options for, for people. But did was, it, was he familiar with studies that really got you thinking differently about the yeah. possibilities there? He could cite studies, uh, not the way my young colleague could, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, he knew some, some of the literature. Uh, he had read uh, 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 Michael Pollan's book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, yeah. um, and gave it to me, and then I read it, and that helped. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I could confess, confess to being an ignoramus, uh, you know, um, I mean, I was vaguely aware, you know, of some of the work with alcoholism, with LSD, um, I, I, I obviously, as, as we all did, knew people who, would, um, use psychedelics for, uh, the experience and pleasure and liked them, but, you know, it's a little different, um, to be using them. For the experience and be using them uh, in a targeted way to address uh, something very painful, and to do that in the way psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is is uh, uh, designed. The, those who are advancing psychedelics um, through traditional approval mechanisms are not are not in fact developing developing them as traditional drugs. Hmm. So, you know, it's not like we're trying to approve psilocybin for depression or MDMA for PTSD. These are psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, very careful to say it's the psychotherapy and that it's the, the drug that is facilitating the therapy. Hmm. So... Thing I mentioned before, it's a pretty for each session of MDMA or each session of psilocybin, it's two therapists with eight hours of preparation, eight hours during the experience, and eight hours for the post-experience integration. That's uh, 24 hours times two of therapy. Now, when you actually look at the therapy that's being delivered, you know, it's the closest thing you come to is you know support or even something like Rogerian therapy, where it's more reflective back to, you know, what are you experiencing? Tell me more kind of thing. Go with it. Um, it's not, you know, highly uh, um, developed uh, conceptual therapy like psychoanalysis or something. <clears throat> but it is still a, a, 
considered a, a, ther a therapeutic intervention and programs are in place to train people to do it that are quite extensive. You know, many hours of, uh, of training, including lots of observation of the experience. So it, it's being developed as a psychotherapy or a psych uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is going to be a challenge because it's going to make it uh, le less accessible for many people because having that kind of costly and uh, difficult to uh, deliver and to train people to provide therapy will slow the you know access to these treatments where are we right now with the efficacy of these treatments you know i mean the devil's always in the details related to new medical options for for patients uh it's great to have a wide array of tools to provide to people to potentially help them but what are the early signals that you're seeing in these uh, in the substances in terms of helping people with, for example, PTSD, depression, alcoholism? Mm -hmm. How how helpful does it seem that these are for people? Well, the testimonials are dramatic. the The, the data are uh, interesting and 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 um, create a feeling of optimism. But let me play skeptic for a second. Yeah, please. Um, the studies that are done are often. Uh, uh, the subjects are very enthusiastic, have tried very hard to have access to the study, so they're really um, motivated. Yeah. The, uh, the, the sites where these studies are done, the principal investigators uh, tend to be people who have invested heavily in this space and believe deeply in it. It's impossible to blind the experience. Yeah. Um, so it's a setup for very positive conclusions. Um, that, you know, if you were able to control in other ways, you know, maybe uh, more daunting to prove. We've seen this in psychiatry all the time. The challenge of doing um, clinical trials with these heterogeneous populations of people who have, you know, um, uh, who vary so much in their uh, ability to respond to these agents. The studies are very complicated to do. A lot of subjects don't comply with studies and are taking the medicine. So it's very hard to get signals in psychiatric clinical trials. I have, in my career, has been trying to find new ways to treat things, you know, new combinations of treatments using old drugs and novel ways to try to get, use nutraceuticals and complementary and alternative medicines and other things to try to get more people to respond to treatment. And time after time, I've had remarkable success hmm. only to be defeated when I tried to prove it in a clinical yeah. trial, yeah. which doesn't mean they didn't work. It just means they work for some people. And, and then when you try to gather people to be volunteers in studies, you can go lots of different ways. So for example, the, um, uh, the trial with psilocybin versus a uh, traditional antidepressant, uh, S-citalopram, mm -hmm. uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year. Um, you know, depends on how you read it, but the conclusions say that the psilocybin performed no better than escitalopram and SSRI. Hmm. Now, if you look deeper into the data, you can find lots of signals that say, well, that's just because of the rules of clinical trial statistical analysis. It didn't s separate 
statistically. But gee, you know, on every measure, psilocybin looked better. But again, it was at a site that's, you know, uh, focuses on psychedelics. All the people who had been in the study had had experience with psychedelics. And they screened a thousand patients, a thousand subjects to get 59 patients. Hmm. So how generalizable is it? Did that yeah. really prove that yeah. how much better these substances will be? Now, with escitalopram, you have to take it every day and you have to take it for weeks and months and maybe years. And the idea behind the psychedelics is that with three sessions, something changes and you might have a durable benefit. Yeah. So, so even if they were equal in that study, it still might argue that psychedelics have the advantage but still it's hard it's going to be hard it's going to be hard to uh, show in a clinical trial what people are reporting in small open studies and testimonials hmm. well, i want to ask you a few final questions the first being um people who listen to this and just in listening to you speak about how quickly this sounds like a startup getting put together, you know, with some very capable and talented people, some of whom I, it sounds like you, you've known for a while. Um, for individuals who listen to this or hear about the organization, whether they're PhDs, doctors, investors, what what's the best way that people can help at this point? <laughs> Well, I mean that—that's like a like a uh, soft uh, pitch. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you know, for us, it, it's we, we're we're counting on philanthropy right now. Yeah. And um, so we think that people who have already made tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in this space owe it to everybody else to advance the science. I mean, it doesn't have to be Mass General. It could be UCSF. It could be Yale. It could be NYU. It could be Hopkins. But they, 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 people who have the capacity to uh, advance the science until such time as there are, are other mechanisms, you know, foundations and NIH that can advance this work. I mean, I think they really have to come to the table and, and, um, and you know, find their their favorite center or scientist or approach and and fund that for everybody else um you know i i those i feel uh, most uh, uh, regretful for are the number of people who are so hopeful right now yeah um with all the news about it who are having trouble getting access i mean there are those who find the underground and and, and get treatment but i hear a lot from people in the you know in the city and people who don't have the means or the connections who are desperate to try something new who for one reason or another feel that you know the current medical treatment has failed them now there's no guarantee this will work for them either sure. but but they but the idea that we can't <clears throat> help them uh, unless they qualify for a small study you know for you know years to come and even then you know whether their insurance or anybody will make it available to them uh, so I just think we need advocacy. We need um, more support for the science. Everybody can can advocate. Everybody can you know um, um, work to make sure that uh, the legacy of criminalizing and making Schedule One these ad agents don't hold us back. Because holding us back is 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 keeping people suffering unnecessarily for a longer period of time. I'm glad you brought this up because, and I don't even know that there is a good answer here, but for the people who are listening to this and or are learning about psychedelics who are treatment resistant and are desperate, I mean, it sounds like you're hearing from 
a lot of these people who just learn about what you do and reach out to you because they're at the end of the rope and they need, they would like some hope in their life. What do you say to people now? I mean, hopefully this becomes more and more widely available over time as a potential option. Uh, I think you've been fair-minded in in, uh, articulating the fact that these are not necessarily silver bullets. It's not a guarantee, but what do you what do you say to people who who reach out to you who who do need help now or would like help now desperately so there's a small um subgroup of those who probably do qualify for our study and will be able to um yeah, at least get a, a, a one session of treatment with psilocybin during our through imaging study I, for those with other conditions where i know that uh, there are studies elsewhere I will mention to them. So, for example, there I hear from people with severe OCD, and I know there was a study at Yale, so I might mention that. For others, if they haven't tried ketamine, um, I suggest that that's probably the closest they'll be able to come to um, a treatment that can work for treatment-resistant patients for a variety of conditions that has some of the elements of a psychedelic-like uh, and ketamine effect. is legal, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's accessible ketamine to is, Americans. Is, an, is approved. Um, well, a form of ketamine is is approved for treatment of uh, treatment resistant depression, but ketamine itself is a generic medicine that any doctor can can prescribe. Yeah. Um, there are lots of ketamine clinics and individual offices that provide ketamine treatment. Uh, for uh, depressed patients and even for other conditions. Um, it may have some benefit, maybe even for PTSD, some hint there as well. But certainly for depression, severe depression, suicidal depression, anxious depression. Um, so th- there are practitioners who use ketamine now in, a, in, in an analogous way to psychedelics in what's called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So often then they're not doing infusions of ketamine as ketamine centers or ketamine clinics do, but uh, with lozenges or intramuscular uh, administration. And then during that w- the window of time, not necessarily when someone's having the, the dissociative state that goes with ketamine, but in the window of time afterwards, the same theory that there's an opportunity for change um, involving the increased neuroplasticity that ketamine creates that therapy may be more beneficial and people can make gains that would be harder without it. Hmm. So ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is becoming a thing Hmm. uh, in addition to ketamine infusions, which are typically for more severely ill patients. Hmm. So this is primarily a a a society and cultural show. And and a lot of the themes that I try to touch on in the show is what is happening in our culture or what is about to happen in our culture. This is the third episode I've done related in some way directly with psychedelics. Um, it's the first time I've talked to somebody who's actually running a center and I would be curious, maybe as the last question to get your thoughts about where you hope or where you think we are headed culturally with this, you know, if, as you look into the future, the next three to five years, um, what, how do you, what do you hope America looks like the world looks like in terms of accessibility for these substances? Where, where do you think we're headed here? I, I, uh, I don't want to think about the very long term. I, sure. don't, I don't know what that would be like. I mean, I I, uh, I don't think it's a good idea for uh, all people to have access to psychedelics at will without education, training, preparation. Um, that that may be a little curmudgeonly. I mean, I you know for for um, 
I mean, I think people should understand um, what what the experience will be, what they will experience. They should do it in a safe place with support. Uh, I don't. I I don't believe there's any reason for these agents to be criminalized or anybody to to suffer legal consequences for wanting to use them any more than they should for you know all the other kinds of experiences we allow people to have, whether it's you know alcohol or uh, in many places cannabis now. Yeah. Um, so what will the world look like? I I, I you know I focus narrowly on on uh, the world of uh, psychiatry and, and and medicine and I want there to be new tools to help more people um, and I'm uh, hopeful that uh, these will be available accessible and and uh, and, and not uh, overly burdensome in terms of cost and uh, and that they will work at least a some somewhere in approximation to what the hype and promise yeah, is at this moment. As far as whether, you know, people should be able to um, just, you know, you know, uh, access them and get in their car and drive. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 it's challenging to try to strike the balance here. Yeah. How do you, how do you um, uh, advocate for responsible and safe use and, uh, and, and, and they'll and then they'll also allow people freedom to have experiences that they they might want to seek. You know whether it's cliff diving or bungee jumping, people yeah. are allowed to do that. Yeah. So I'm 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 cautious. I mean I, uh, and that's one reason I want to know more about what's going on in the brain to know if it's safe, uh, how to, how to manage it if it goes awry, uh, how to do it more efficiently and and simpler and uh, and. Uh, uh, and help more people, but I I I, I worry about a uh, a a world of uh, of uh, um, you know uncontrolled access to lots of substances, especially when uh, they may be attractive alternative realities, and 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 we can only imagine what what that what that would be like. Yeah, and maybe if I can slip one final question in. It, it, dovetails to some degree into what you just uh, spoke about is I think for a lot of people, these substances are uh, rightly intimidating and kind of scary, especially if you have never done them before, don't know a lot about what the experience is like. When people come to you and ask you that question, you know, what, what, how should I prepare for this trip, this journey, this experience? How do you describe that to them? What what is going on experientially as a human being yeah. on these on these? So substances? I haven't had to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, we actually some of the team are trained, and they're the therapists who do will do the preparation for the studies. But uh, you're absolutely right. If you look at the videos of people going through this experience, they're pretty dramatic. Hmm. And I've sometimes thought that uh, all the commercial interest is a little optimistic that a lot of humans are going to want to put themselves through this experience. Hmm. Um, you know, there are certainly many who are desperate for it, but there'll be others who will be uh, quite uh, fearful and avoidant of, you know, if they are told what they might experience or seen videos of people going through it. It may not, you know, it's not going to sweep the nation. Yeah. Um, but for people who are desperate and really suffering, I think they will overcome the the, the fear of the experience and and then the good news is that uh, again as I said most people who have had a bad trip 
will actually say later that the experience was a positive one overall. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I, uh, I really appreciate the time. Um, and I, I, I admire the work you guys are, are doing. I know it's early, but it just feels like there is something happening in the country to some degree related to the, oh, these, yeah. uh, these change, change is coming. Yeah. You know, this, this will be part of our, certainly part of our medical world or psychiatric world, but it'll, it'll be, uh, it'll, it'll be a, a, a growing, um, uh, passion and experience for lots of people. And maybe Rick's right. Maybe it'll shift, the uh, uh, humanity towards a more uh, compassionate uh, place. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I wish you the best of luck. It was really good to meet you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 